0: Well, thank you for those great songs and that great singing. That's where our hope is, that Jesus died and rose again. That's what we need to remember, not just this time of year, but every every day. That's our hope. And this morning, we're going to be looking more at the hope that we have in the mercy and the compassion of God. I want you who are younger people to, to think about, or actually any of you that either are driving now or will be driving soon, think about if there was one car that you had an opportunity to drive. What would that car be? What do you think would be the best vehicle for you to drive if you could afford it? The problem is you can't afford it. But just just imagine someone were to give you a free gift. And, And what that gift is is, A set of keys to that vehicle, that car that you always wanted to drive. And he has paid the title, he's paid the registration, he's paid the insurance, and he's going to pay for whatever the gas prices run to. He's going to take care of your gas too. And he hands you these keys, and it's what you always wanted. But the only question is, are you going to take that gift? Sounds too good to be true. This is what you always wanted. But Kevin DeYoung says, as we think about mercy and grace, this is what we actually need to think about. You're lying unconscious on a hospital bed. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. You should be dead. In fact, the doctor pronounced you dead just a minute ago. But now your heart is beating. You had been in in an accident in in a car, and, and you were bleeding out, but now they've They've infused, while you were unconscious, they've infused blood into you and they're pumping you back to life. And, and so this is the, the gift that's given to you. It's, it's for free, but it's, it's also put into you when you didn't even have any ability to ask for it or resist it or receive it. And we need to understand God gives new life, not just something like a new car. But think of those two illustrations. Both of them are freely given. Both of them are undeserved, but one is something presented to you as an option, while the other is a new quality infused in you. And, and so the, the, the gift is, is life, but it includes faith, and, and it's something that we don't even naturally want on our own. It's a new principle worked in us by God's mercy. And that's what we're going to look at in Romans 9 today. But as you do, let me read from Ephesians 2 because it says you were dead in your sins. In other words, there was no moving towards God. There was no choosing or even reaching out your hand to receive anything. And you didn't even want it if it had been offered in that state. You're following your desires. But Ephesians 2 4 says, but God, here it is, but God being rich In mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's what it means to be saved by grace. When you were dead, he made you alive. While you were dead, and it says we're saved by grace through faith. That's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's that gift of life and And the gift of God includes faith, but even that is not of ourselves, so that no one may boast. It's a new principle. It's actually given to us when we were dead. And it's new life. It's new desires by rich mercy. And then as we come to, we see the great physician. We see and we understand more as we hear more what he's done for us. We respond freely and joyfully and gratefully. But he did all that for us. We understand more the depth of mercy for us. And Romans 9 is one of those passages that shows us more of the depth of mercy. Look at Romans 9, verse 15. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will, God says, have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then... It depends not on human will or exertion. In other words, what we do or choose, it depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason or purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever He wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured, listen to the language, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There's much patience for them in order to, verse 23, make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So if God has given mercy to you you're a vessel that he has a purpose to give his mercy through you to others. We've studied in the book of Romans for several weeks now God's wrath, God's power, God's glory some of these terms that I just read his name last week proclaimed in all the earth we looked at that in verse 17 we've seen he's loving in the book of Romans he's holy we've seen he's Jealous, looking at other scriptures as well. He's just, he's righteous, he's good, he's faithful, and today we're going to see he's merciful. And you might wonder, because we looked at grace earlier, isn't mercy just kind of a synonym for grace? Is there a difference between grace and mercy? And in some ways, they're very closely related, two sides of the same coin, but grace often emphasizes this is something given to us that we don't deserve. It's undeserved favor Whereas mercy is not giving judgment that we do deserve. So giving favor we don't deserve is grace. Not giving judgment, not, not getting judgment we do deserve is mercy. Mercy is emphasizing the legal side. Consequences pardoned. Just consequences pardon. And so all this relates to God's justice and all these other things. Mercy is for the guilty. And mercy is also used for those who were in misery, or those who are in inability. And so it's it's the guilty, and then other times you just you see someone who's in misery and has utter inability to do anything about it, and that moves mercy in scripture as well. Maybe we can think about it in these terms. Placerville is known as Hangtown. That's not a very popular image uh, today, but just imagine the days when they would do public hangings. And imagine you're a guilty criminal. You're on the gallows. You deserve to die. You're a dead man. You feel the noose around your neck. They've covered your face. You can't see anything. you, You can feel the noose kind of tightening. You're standing on this shaky platform. And all it takes, and you're just waiting for it, Is for them to to pull that handle and you're going to instantly plunge and be strangled to death. But all of a sudden you don't even see what's going on. Someone else comes and someone else intervenes. They stop the execution. They come and they set you free legally. They take that hood off and now you're looking at your deliverer and you see him and you respond with humble thanks. That is a man who knows mercy the one who's felt the the rope and and knows that at any moment he could and should receive death for his sins, who then is pardoned, that person has felt the weight of their consequences and felt what mercy is. And so we've got to understand that we are guilty in Scripture. We are in, in misery. We have no ability. Our only hope is but God being rich in mercy. And he is, the Puritan Goodwin wrote. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to, to give it life. If your heart be hard, he has mercies to, that are tender, that can soften it. If you're sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you're sinful, he has mercies to cleanse you from your sins. As large and as various as our wants and our needs are, so large and various are his mercies, A multitude of mercies for every, he has abundant mercies for every need. And this writer says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. That's from Hebrews. But he adds this, all the mercies that are in God's own heart, he has transplanted into several beds in the gardens of his promises where they grow. I love that image. He's taking these, he's planted them into these beds, these promises that can grow in our life. A.W. Tozer said this, mercy is not just something God has, but something God is. He is a merciful and gracious God by nature. And so what I want us to do in this passage is look at four questions. Four questions, and you can pull up the slide with the outline, brothers. But the first one is, how does God's mercy relate to Compassion. This is in verse 15. And then how does God's mercy relate to man's choice in verse 16? How does God's mercy relate to God hardening in verses 17 through 22? And then how are we to relate to others as vessels of mercy? So, relation to compassion, to man's choice, to God's hardening... And how are we to relate to others, then, in light of this? But first of all, how mercy and compassion relate. Romans 9, 15 says this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is his sovereign compassion. This is his saving compassion. We read in other places, Psalm 145, 8, The Lord is full of compassion and great in mercy. There's a lot of familiar passages that link his mercy to other attributes. Maybe the most famous is Psalm 23. Surely, goodness, and what? And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Or the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never, what? Come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. See, his mercies relate to all of his other attributes. And they're fresh. They're new every morning. Every morning. In his great faithfulness. And maybe the most repeated phrase about God in the Bible is this. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That is our Lord. Those are all Old Testament verses. Sometimes you'll hear people say, they they think wrongly, the God of the Old Testament is is an angry God. And then the New Testament, we have this merciful God, but... There's only one God. He never changes. And the Old Testament actually talks about his mercy four times more than the New Testament. And just in one psalm, his mercy is mentioned 36 times in one chapter, Psalm 136. And David's famous prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 starts this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Or the, another translation says, according to your great compassion. So mercy and compassion, depending on which version you're reading, they're, they're somewhat interchangeable. But this is what we heard last week. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's how someone is justified. That's how saving mercy comes. It's the one who can't, just what we sang about. It's nothing in us, nothing we can bring to God. All we can do is beat our breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's the person who can be justly justified in God's sight in Luke 18. Another psalm says, God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He hasn't dealt with us according to what we deserve. That's mercy. And then it goes on to say, as a father, this is Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The compassion of a Of an earthly father is a picture infinitely more and perfectly how God has compassion on us. And it says this, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And that shows maybe a little bit of distinction. Compassion is especially his fatherly pity. He's, He's mindful of our weak and fail frame. If we're good parents, we should be that way as well, mindful of the frame and the weaknesses of our little ones. Psalm 72 says, God will have compassion on the poor and the needy, the afflicted, who has no helper. His heart is moved towards those who are poor and needy, afflicted, who need help. And that's what Romans is talking about. In Romans 5, it's verse 6, while we were still helpless Christ died for us while we were without strength, while we were powerless. Christ came for us while we were weak. And what compassion emphasizes is is his pity. Compassion is is two parts in English. The first part, calm, with. Passion is, is feeling. This is to feel with someone, to be compassionate to try to feel what they're feeling, to to see a need and then be moved to to meet that need mercifully. Lamentations 3.22 says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions, they fail not. We deserve to be consumed for our sins, but He has unfailing compassion and he doesn't give us what we deserve because of his mercy. So mercy if you if we can make a distinction between mercy and compassion, mercy emphasizes pardon to the to those who deserve punishment. Compassion is pity to the desperate. So it's pardon the opposite of what is deserved or it's pity to the desperate. This is what the blind men that Pastor Cliff read about earlier. Lord, have mercy on us, son of Dave, Jesus. Then it says he had pity on them. He came to them. He asked them what they wanted him to do for them. Jesus hears those cries. Jesus shows us a God of compassion and mercy. We read in the Gospels many times he saw the multitudes and his heart was moved with compassion He saw these harassed and helpless people who were like sheep without a shepherd, and that moves his heart to move out in action to them. We read of his compassion on hungry people, their physical needs even, on a a grieving widow. His heart sees that and is moved with compassion, a, a boy who's been troubled his whole life with these seizures and even possession his heart is moved with compassion these lepers who were outsiders that no one else paid attention to or would come near Jesus is moved towards them with compassion and mercy and he tells a story of a Samaritan those were people they were considered enemies and they didn't want to have anything to do with and there's a man you know the story who's he's beaten on the road to Jericho and the one who comes and shows compassion to him, is the Samaritan. He felt compassion. He acted. And and Jesus says, which of these three, there were some religious people that passed by, but this one from an enemy people group shows compassion. Jesus says, which of these proved to be a neighbor? And the, the man rightly answered, the one who showed mercy. So there again, compassion and mercy, two, two sides of the same coin, but it was something that was felt that moved into the action of mercy. And He also told the story, another familiar one, of the prodigal son. You remember the, the son who rebelled, treated his father horribly, he went and squandered his inheritance and his wealth on prostitutes. And he's, he's there, and he, he realizes that he... He, he doesn't deserve anything. He doesn't even deserve to be called a son anymore, but he, he goes back. Maybe I can just plead with my father and he'll let me be one of his servants because that's better than where I am now with these pigs and these corn husks. And so he goes back to his father and he's prepared what he's going to say to him. But it says this, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and the father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and And kissed him. And then the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and and put it on and put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and let's kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now is alive. He was lost and is found. That's the father's compassion on the sinner who comes in repentance knowing he doesn't deserve to be a son but just hoping maybe he can be a a slave and the father shows his compassion, shows he's a wonderful, merciful savior. And he runs to embrace a repentant. He doesn't wait for them to prove their way back or, or pay their way back. He runs and he embraces them and brings them into the family and that's mercy. The other son didn't like that. And sometimes we can struggle with mercy in our hearts because we think that's not what they deserve. That's the point. That's mercy and compassion. But number two, it goes deeper mercy in man's choice. Look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy mercy. We've got to go back in the context of verse 10 where there's the example of Isaac and Rebecca. She's pregnant with twins. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. This is before they're born. They haven't, they're both in the, in the womb there. They haven't done anything in order that, here it is, God's purpose of election might continue not because of works But because of him, that's God who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is the same DNA. This is the same family, same parents, same womb at the same time. They were womb mates, literally. It wasn't dependent on their will. It wasn't dependent on their works. It was God's purpose of election. I remember one preacher saying, God had to have chosen me before I was born, because there was nothing I did after I was born that would make him want to choose me. That's the idea here. The end of verse 11 says it was because of God's call, and that's language he used in chapter 8. God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the same language as here. Look look back there, Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called... Predestined means uh, on the horizon, in the future, setting his, this plan upon them. He also called, that's the word for election in chapter 9. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. None of them get lost. And so verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the, that's the word for he's chosen them. God's elect who he calls by election and predestination. All of them make it to glory. All those he predestined and called are justified. That means saved and they are glorified. No one can bring a charge against any of his elect. But as we come to this part of chapter 9, some want to charge God. There's no charge against God's elect. We like that part. Some though might want to charge God. And the context of chapter 9 verse 14 is a question. And the question is, is it unjust For God to choose to have mercy on some and not others. Jacob and not Esau. Moses and not Pharaoh. Israel and not Egypt. We could say Jacob was loved. Esau was hated. Moses got mercy. Pharaoh was hardened. Egypt was destroyed by plagues. Their army was dead. Israel got compassion. And what he just said in verse 16, one translation says, God's choice does not depend on a person's will. Or another translation says, we can't choose it. God decides. And, and the end of verse 15, or this, this version says this, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. And, and then in verse 18, God chooses to show mercy to some. And so if it's unconditional and it's independent of Man In his will, if it's not us making a decision, if it's God mercifully showing up, the question of verse 14 is, how does that work with justice? And we need to understand a sinner's will or a sinner's choice is why we need mercy. It's not how we get mercy. It's an explanation. The fact that we make choices is, is, is why we need mercy, to rescue us from our choices. It's not how we get mercy because we don't on our own choose or seek God. And so some would wonder, is mercy based on what God sees in us or, or something he foresees in us that we will do or decide? And so think about these three examples. Was there something in Jacob or Moses or Israel that was better about others or, or that God saw in them? Think of Jacob. Jacob was... Even after God calls him, he was a heel-grabbing scoundrel. He, he deceives his own brother out of the birthright. He deceives his own dying dad. This is Jacob. This is a guy I don't want to choose in my family. Or Think about Moses. He's a, a murderer. He kills an Egyptian in cold blood because he was punching an Israelite. And then he has to run away. And he's, he's, There's a lot. He had some anger issues, we would say today. And then when God calls Moses, he's making all kinds of excuses as to why, no, 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 I can't talk, Uh, maybe Aaron. And then Israel, God calls them, shows mercy on them. They're complaining the whole way. And he, he makes clear to them, it's not because you were better than others. But I have to also honestly look at my own heart and say, if God didn't choose me first and love me first, I would refuse God still. And but for the grace of God, he's, he's got to hold me fast to keep me in him. I think Romans 9 is hard to swallow if you haven't first tasted and seen what Romans 1 through 3 says. Because Paul is expecting, you've, you've been with him starting in Romans 1. And if we believe Romans 3.11 says no one seeks God, then we can receive Romans we need God to to seek us. 1 Peter 1-3 says, Blessed be God who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. It wasn't according to my great choice that I was born again. It's according to his great mercy. And it's the same thing in John 1-3 13, children who were born again, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. Or James 1.18 says, by the exercise of God's will, some translations even say God's free will, he gave us birth. Nothing we could do or choose brought about our first birth or our second birth. And that's part of the analogy in scripture. Jesus told Nicodemus, the spirit blows where it will You've got to be born again to even see the kingdom of God, much less seek it. And, and here's the, the hard question for me why, why me? Why has God been merciful to me? Why am I standing here today wanting to preach to you God's mercies instead of somewhere else living for myself? Why me? And here's the answer I don't know. But I do know this. It's not because there was something better in me. I can't point to what's in me. All I can do is thank God for his mercy. But that begs a third question. How does God's mercy relate to God's hardening? And this gets a little harder for some. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, if if you're tracking with Paul, this is is something that that you're going to think, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And So as we think of Pharaoh's hardening, there are hard questions there. We, We looked at last week at verse 17, and actually we looked at Exodus. You could look at it. It says several times Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then later in it we see God hardened his heart. And his purpose was to put him put his name on display. Even in his mercy, it's been said the same think about this image, the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. It's the same sun but this brings up the subject of reprobation or or double predestination. God passing over some and, and giving mercy to others and there's an error of, of equal ultimacy to say we see how active God needs to be to show mercy to us that we would ever come to Him. But that's not the same way. God doesn't need to intervene in a sinner's life for them to sin. He's allowing them to go their own way and there, there comes a time where there is, there is hardening and I think maybe even Romans 1 has already talked about that giving people over But here's the question in verse 14. Is God unjust? And the answer is is not at all. And the answer of verse 15 is some get mercy, but listen, they get mercy rather than what's just. Some get what's just, and some get mercy. No one gets what's unjust. That's what we have to understand. Some get what is just. Some get mercy. Mercy is not getting what we justly deserve. Hardened sinners get what they justly deserve. No one gets injustice. But God gives mercy as He wills, and He doesn't reveal to us all of what's going on in His will. So verse 19 raises the question, how can God find fault? If it's irresistible grace or or mercy, we can't resist His will, how is it our fault if salvation is all of mercy? How is Pharaoh judged... If God hardened him, how can Esau be responsible if he didn't get God's love like Esau? And we might hope verse 20 was a different answer than we get, but verse 20 doesn't really answer that question. But it says, Who are you to question God? Who are you to think God is unjust? God is God. We are the clay. He is the the potter. And we know this about clay and and pottery. The the clay is not as smart as the potter. (laughs) The potter's understanding is is infinitely above the clay and and in some sense we can't fully understand some of these things but we, we trust who God is. He is the potter. We trust all these things that Roman has said about him and we know that he is free to do what he does without our will, without our permission, without our approval but we know he's good. We know he's just. We know all those other things that we've seen in Romans. Those things should not be in question and we also know In verse 22, even on those vessels of wrath, it says he endures with much patience. There is tremendous patience. In fact, Peter talks about why Jesus hasn't come again in wrath. It's because he's unbelievably patient. And there's still some he's going to mercifully call even through that. And in the end of chapter 11, he comes back to talking about hardening and how even in hardening there is mercy. Even in the partial hardening upon Israel, there's mercy taking place to the Gentiles. There's mercy, there's hope even for hardened Israel. You can read that at the end of Romans 11. But God doesn't answer Romans 9 verse 19 head on. And so I'm not going to be able to answer it to your satisfaction or mine but here's, here's a way to look at it. Is it a mystery why Pharaoh wasn't saved? Is it a mystery why Esau would not be saved? I think if you look at Scripture honestly, if you look at even your own heart before Christ, there's no mystery as to why that would be. The mystery I see when I read the Scripture is, why is Jacob saved? Why is Jacob saved? Why am I saved? That's that's the hardest question for me in this whole thing. Why would I have mercy? I don't know. But God doesn't say why he chose Jacob or me. I just know it's not about me or based on what's in me. And I also know the end of Romans 1.20 says, All are without excuse. Paul says in Romans 1 that man is worthy of death and deserving of death. Therefore, he says, you have no excuse. And so if fair is what is deserved, death is what we all deserve. We've got to come back to that. We all deserve death according to God's law. Romans 3.19 says, God's law stops every mouth and makes every man accountable. And so we know this. If God says sinners are accountable and are responsible, they are. We can know that every mouth is going to be stopped on judgment day. There's no mouth on judgment day that's going to be able to say that wasn't fair. And I even had a sense of this in my own life when I was 11 or 12 years old. I just had this overwhelming sense that if I died that day, I was going to stand before the judgment seat of God and there would be nothing I could do or say to, to, to make me acceptable to God. I was guilty, and I, and I hadn't done a lot when I was 11. But I was just so overwhelmed with my own guilt, and, and I knew there is nothing I would be able to say before God. That's how it's going to be on Judgment Day. The only thing people are going to be able to say is bow their knee and confess that Jesus is who he said he is. But Paul knows and is explained. There's no one who's going to be able to say it's not fair. And Paul expects that you've read Romans 1 through 8 before you get to Romans 9. But again, Esau received justice. Jacob received mercy. Pharaoh and Egypt received justice. Israel and Moses received mercy, but no one received injustice. And God would be just to send all of us to hell. There's no injustice in him sending everyone to there now. But verse 22 says there's patience Even before he gives wrath, there's Romans 1 through 2, common grace, there's creation, there's kindness around us. Jacob got undeserved saving love. Why is that? I don't know. I do know this Pharaoh was not a good guy that God had to implant some inclination in. There is a judicial hardening, Esau rejected the blessings. That were there. There is a judicial hardening, God giving them over, like Romans 1 talks about. That's a sobering reality. But we don't know, looking at people, when that hardening will come. But here's what Charles Spurgeon said: "If you find it hard that God chooses some and leaves others in the sin they choose and love, He says, "I'll ask you one question. Is there any of you this morning who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be regenerate, who wishes to leave off sin? If you could raise your hand and say, yes, I do, then we know that God has elected you. He's shown mercy to you, uh, but, but someone else would say, I, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts. Why should you grumble then that God has not chosen you to that? For if you were elected to it, you would not like it according to your own confession. Supposing I had in my hands something you do not value and I, and I say, I'm going to give it to this person over here. You would not grumble that I gave to someone else what you don't care about. And he says, many of you do not want a new heart. You don't want a right spirit. You don't want the forgiveness of sins. You don't want to be holy. You would not grumble that you don't get those things that you don't want. Or suppose a man would say, it's such a shame. I can't be at, at, the, at the church there to hear. I, I hate that preacher. I can't stand anything he says, but it's, it's such a shame that I don't have a seat there. He doesn't care for that. Why would he trouble himself about others having what he what he despises and they value. He says, if any of you have salvation, you have been chosen to receive mercy. If you desire it sincerely and earnestly, it is yours. But if you don't have it, don't be so preposterously foolish as to grumble because God gives what you do not like to other people. You need to also know this. His mercy, His doors of mercy will turn no one away. That's clear in Scripture as well. His mercy is open to you. And today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart as you hear His voice. And here's the last part How are we to relate to others? How all those things relate? I can't answer those questions fully, but I can answer this question. How are we to relate to others as vessels of mercy? Chapter 9, verse 23 says, God's purpose was to make known his glory to vessels of mercy. Again, it's not just something to us, it needs to flow through us. So look at Romans 11. For God's mercy through Gentiles to Israel Romans eleven thirty one. 31, So they too, this is Israel, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. It's, it's supposed to go to you and through you. And then chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, what? By the mercies of God. When he's going to appeal to them now to live this out, this is where he starts in chapter 12 and following, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You're not saved to sit. You're saved to serve. You're saved to sacrificially serve others. God desires mercy more than sacrifice, but he also calls us to be sacrifices, to daily give an offer of ourselves in his service. He shows mercy to us so we can show others. So look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. There are opponents we have, whether political or even real opponents. People are being persecuted and have enemies around the world. But we're not to curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. You think, well, they deserve evil. But in view of God's mercies, not giving us what we deserve for our evil, don't pay back. Show mercy. Verse 20, what does that look like? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is, mercy, if he is thirsty, give him something to eat. He said, they don't deserve that exactly. It's mercy. Jesus taught, blessed are the merciful. He said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is, is merciful. Paul says in Colossians, we need to put on a heart of compassion, Or tender mercies in the New King James. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you, so also must you. If you are a complainer, you need to put on a compassionate heart. You need to put on tender mercies. You need to be willing to forgive. And and that doesn't touch on outside of us, authorities that we prayed for earlier that need to deal justice and need to do all those things, and there's a lot of injustice around the world that needs to be dealt with, but this is what's going on in our own heart. Jesus told a story about a man who owed 10,000 talents. He had great need, no ability to repay. All he could do was come and plead, prostrate for mercy, and it says this, the master felt compassion on him. And he forgave him the debt. And then he told him this, Should not you also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? So in your interpersonal relationships, again, this is not going against the court or police or other things that need to be done, but in your relationships with others, we're we're not to be thinking, How can I make this other person pay for what they have done to me? We need to be thinking about how can I share Christ, show Christ to this person? How can I feel compassion? How can I deal with the bitterness in my heart? How can I forgive? The only answer to that is if you're meditating on how God has forgiven you in Christ for all that you have done against God, not making you pay for what you deserved. See, we're vessels for God's gifts and grace of mercy to flow through. Chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And then in verse 8, he comes back to that word mercy. Verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God is a cheerful giver in acts of mercy to us. That needs to flow through us. So think of yourself as a vessel of mercy Think of of a vessel that's filled to overflowing so that it can spill over to others, that mercy. And in verse 7, it can be things like service. In our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Those are ways you can do that this week. Who can you be hospitable to? Who can you be friendly to, love of strangers, even someone here you don't know. Who can you help encourage even while you're here? And, and I would say we also have needs not only for people inviting into homes or serving here, we have needs for fellowship, relationship, discipleship beyond what we as leaders can fully meet. And there are some immediate service needs on your way out, the tables in the back. There's ways that you can Serve in important ways for a few weeks, even with our children's ministry, or every other week, Sunday school, VBS, other ways to serve. But here's the final purpose for God's mercy, chapter 15. There's one more in order that statement about God's mercy, chapter 15, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's us, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. And sing to your name. So we're going to do that. We're going to sing to his name. And I want you to think about these words that we're going to sing. We're going to be singing about how his mercy is more. And we're called to sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. We will sing with his mouth. We will make known his faithfulness to all generations. We're called to sing aloud of his mercy. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. And in Second Chronicles they sing praises to his mercy with musical instruments. Let me just read, this is from Beautiful Eulogies," song, Instruments of Mercy, I'll leave you with. This is a prayer, really. Our merciful God is playing the harp with the various parts of our heart's instrument. We're a symphony of saints saved from sin by our glorious Lord, who's composing a, a score put together in melodious chord. So here's the prayer, organize and order my days according to your ordinance. I'm an instrument in your orchestra and you are my only audience. Watching as your plan unfolds, playing the song that you composed with your hands, play your song, use my life, I'm your instrument, tune my heart to sing your song. Use my life. I'm your instrument. If that's your prayer, say amen. 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 Let's pray. Our merciful Savior, we pray that you would use our lives, that you would help us to be merciful and charitable in how we think and speak of other Christians and also how we speak to the world that needs your mercy. Help us, O Lord, for your mercy's sake, we pray. Amen.